Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. The rising sea is pushing homeowners to retreat from prime oceanfront land and overwhelming natural barriers like salt marshes. But what does the future hold for us? Five times in the history of the Earth, nearly all life has winked out. The planet undergoing a series of changes so massive, the overwhelming majority of living species died. Today, seven out of ten scientists believe that we're in the middle of the sixth. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll hear the personal stories of those affected by rising seas. And who's buying the region's water companies? And what does it mean for this important public resource? Nobody wants to have to worry about when they turn their tap water on, whether it's safe for their children and their families. Plus, the collision of two trendy beverages. Can you make vodka with kombucha? I confess we're still tinkering with it. (laughs) And a lot of what we do is just sort of learn by doing because no one's ever done this before. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This week, we're looking at a few ways our region's infrastructure is changing, and we'll start with the biggest electric utility in the region getting into the water business. Eversource is currently trying to buy its second water company inside of a year. The utility hopes to provide water service to hundreds of thousands of customers across four New England states. It would still be a small piece of the overall water system, but that could change. New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek has more on why electric companies may want to get into water. To understand how Eversource was able to get into the water sector in the first place, you need to understand some recent electric industry history. In 2015, publicly regulated electric utilities were being deregulated. It meant Eversource couldn't own power plants and the poles and wires that bring that power to customers. So Eversource agreed to auction off its power plants, but lost money on the deal. Now you're paying them back for those losses in the stranded cost recovery charge on your electric bill. New Hampshire's utility ratepayer advocate Don Kreese says long term, those charges will work out to about $600 million for Eversource to spend. And so naturally, the company is looking to make, uh, you know, new capital investments. And I gather that uh, investing in in water companies is one of them. Last year, Eversource used some of the money from selling its power plants to buy Connecticut-based Aquarion, the biggest private water company in New England. The merger was worth nearly $1.7 billion. Eversource says it made them the first and only American electric company to also own a water utility. Eversource spokesman Caroline Prettyman says water is a natural fit for their business. It's regulated like electricity and gas, and they're all about infrastructure. We both provide a critical service that customers need, you know, in their everyday lives, whether in the form of water or energy. And so that seemed to make a lot of sense. Eversource has to keep its water affairs separate from its electric and gas affairs, in spending and in regulation. Still, Prettyman says they're investing heavily in Aquarion, and they're not done expanding into water yet. Right now, Eversource is competing to buy Connecticut Water, also a big player in several New England states. Eversource's main competitor in the merger is California-based SJW Group. If they buy Connecticut Water, they'll become the third biggest water company in the country. 
And the two companies aren't strangers. SJW CEO Eric Thornburg was Connecticut Water's CEO until last year. He recently told utility regulators in Connecticut that he has local knowledge and his new company has industry expertise. Our scale is 100 percent about being a water utility. That is all we will do. Water and wastewater services, public health, public safety, environmental stewardship. That is our sole focus. Connecticut Water is taking other merger bids until July 14th. After that, their shareholders will pick an offer from Eversource, SGW, or someone else to submit for state approval, a process that could last into next year. Eversource's offer is worth a little less than SJW's, but Prettyman, the spokeswoman, says Eversource can offer more true local control. We're in New England headquartered, and, you know, we we feel that that's important. We've heard that from our regulators, and we've heard that from, you know, lawmakers that they like having a, a local presence, and we think it makes sense in this acquisition as well. Still, Eversource is far from a small local water utility. The company has 4 million gas and electric customers, more than any other New England energy company. Don Crease, the ratepayer advocate in New Hampshire, says these forays into water mean a step away from diversity toward risky consolidation. I mean, we, we could essentially have one investor-owned utility in New Hampshire that serves everybody who uses electricity, natural gas, and water. And I, I think that would be uh, too big a swath of the economy and essential public services all vested in one company. Critics of Eversource's expansions, like congressional candidate and New Hampshire State Representative Mindy Mesmer, feel like they're already running into that problem. Last year, Mesmer tried to block Eversource from buying Aquarion. The electric company has a small role in a legacy water contamination issue on the New Hampshire seacoast. Mesmer suspects that contamination has affected an Aquarion well. New Hampshire environmental regulators don't believe that's true, but Mesmer doesn't like having to worry about it at all because she says water plays a different role in our lives than electricity. Nobody wants to have to worry about when they've turned their tap water on what is going to come out of that, whether it's safe for their children and their families. Mesmer says Eversource's entry into the water space erodes local control of that essential water system. She'd rather Eversource lower people's bills than buy up more water companies. But if she had to choose, she says she'd pick Eversource to buy Connecticut water over the California competitor. It had put control closer to home, just not as close as she might like. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek in Concord. Starting this week, there's a new commuter rail line in New England. The Hartford line will link Springfield, Massachusetts, New Haven, Connecticut, and the cities in between. Commuter rail means more trains than Amtrak at a lower price, and trains that will travel speeds of up to 110 miles an hour. It also means more connections to New York City jobs, and it holds the promise of more connections to Boston, too. Cassandra Basler from WSHU reports. In its heyday, the Hartford rail line offered passenger travel at its finest. Each hour, it brought New Yorkers to Springfield and on to Boston or through Vermont all the way up to Montreal. And through the 1940s, they often traveled in a Pullman car. Let's uh, go up the set of steps over here. That's Howard Pincus. He's trustee of the Railroad Museum of New England in Thomaston, Connecticut. Pincus shows me inside the steel Pullman car painted forest green. The car features air conditioning and full-service dining. Uh, you rang for the porter. There would be a little call button here, and the porter would bring a little mahogany table that would clip in. You could play cards. 
look out the window and see America go by. Pincus says that didn't last. After World War II, highways and airports expanded. Declining industry no longer wanted to ship cargo on freight trains. So private railroads couldn't make enough money to keep passenger service going. It it, it was an incredible double whammy. Pincus pulls out two books of train schedules and measures them spine to spine. This one is June of 1941, and this one is August of 1964. What that represents, those missing pages, those are gone passenger trains. Just as rail service was going under in the 70s, the federal government created the passenger railroad company we know today, Amtrak. Connecticut's Department of Transportation Commissioner Jim Redeker says even with federal help, money was tight. Um, Amtrak, uh, frankly, has been um, um, strapped for cash probably through its whole existence. Redeker says in the 1980s, the two tracks along the Hartford line cost too much to maintain. This particular line was falling in disrepair, and they made a choice to actually take out one of the tracks to salvage the metal for scrap value. So that's how bad it was. Um, And frankly, since that time, there has been very, very little work done. That is until now. After 30 years, Connecticut raised more than $700 million in federal and state funds to build new stations and bring back that second track. Seeing a track-laying machine come through Connecticut and put a mile of Brandon Railroad down in a day um, was, was really an amazing achievement and, and frankly something is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But that took time. Redeker says workers essentially had to build a new railway, new bridges and new stations. That meant a six-month delay for the opening. Still, Redeker sees this as a boost for the region. This corridor has never seen rail service like this, um, and we've seen what it means for the economy of the state of Connecticut. Redeker says even before service started, towns along the route have seen nearly $400 million in investment, new buildings popping up around the tracks. One of those cities is Meriden, Connecticut. As an Amtrak train rolls into the station, Caleb Edwards waits on the platform. Edwards says he's excited that his hometown is part of the Hartford Line revival. One thing I find convenient is that they're building the downtown area so that creatives could travel a lot. I don't know, I I feel very uh, blessed to be in in a town now that's getting a train going to one of the points that I usually go to. Edwards wants to go to New York City, and he usually has to catch an Amtrak train to New Haven and transfer. The Hartford line means trains run twice as often at half the price. And Edwards says he doesn't need the stress of traveling through traffic on New England's highways. He's not alone. On the Massachusetts Turnpike, Eric Lesser takes a call on his drive to the Capitol in Boston. Lesser is state senator in the district that includes Springfield. He sees the Springfield to Hartford connection as the first step towards a high-speed track that would connect Hartford to Boston via Springfield. If you link the two regions by rail service, the metro Boston area gets access to a lower cost of living, more affordable housing, and the Springfield-Hartford region will get access to those high-paying jobs. After three years, Governor Charlie Baker has finally pledged to fund a study looking at that plan. For now, Lesser says Massachusetts' priority is to extend the Hartford line north through college towns like Northampton up to Vermont. 
Critics worry that the Hartford Line doesn't really transform rail travel in New England, that the high-speed trains only reach 110 miles an hour in a few spots, and that there's not enough federal funding to expand service. Let's get over to this page here. Back on the antique Pullman sleeper car, Howard Pincus says he still thinks politicians have learned a valuable lesson that made them reinvest in the Hartford line. Subsidizing of rail service was actually an important public good because as many highways as would be built, they'd be full. And at what point do you stop building extra lanes on highways? Do you have a 20-lane highway? That'll fill up. Pincus says without public transportation, nobody will be able to go any place on crowded highways between New York and Boston. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cassandra Basler in Connecticut. Coming up, a lyrical look at rising seas. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. As we've been documenting, sea levels are rising at a fast pace, and they're affecting lives around the country and around the world. Elizabeth Rush grapples with the impact that sea level rise has on the people, the animals, the ecosystems, and landscapes in the U.S. in her new book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. Elizabeth, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering if you could start with a a brief reading for us from your book. Absolutely. I'll read from a section that is actually in the first chapter of the book. And I think the only thing you need to know going into it is that towards the end of this passage, I meditate on a word, tupelo. And it's a kind of tree that, particularly in Rhode Island, but also all up and down the East Coast, when they're sighted atop tidal wetlands, they're starting to drown and die. And so this comes in the middle of this chapter where I've been spending a lot of time amongst these drowning tupelo trees here in Rhode Island. Five times in the history of the Earth, nearly all life has winked out. The planet undergoing a series of changes so massive, the overwhelming majority of living species died. These great extinctions are so exceptional, they even have a catchy name, the Big Five. Today, seven out of ten scientists believe that we're in the middle of the sixth. But there is one thing that distinguishes those past die-offs from the one we're currently constructing. Never before have humans been there to tell the tale. The language we use to narrate our experience in the world can awaken in us the knowledge that transformation is both necessary and ongoing. When we say the word Tupelo, we begin to see that both the trees themselves and the very particular ecology they once depended upon are, at least where they are rooted, gone. Sometimes a key arrives before the lock. Now I'm thinking, sometimes the password arrives before the impasse. These words, when spoken or written down, might grant us entry into a previously unimaginable awareness that the coast and all the living beings on it are changing radically. 
It's a sobering thought that you leave us with early in this book, and I want to get to some of the specifics of that sobering message, but I want to get back to that word tupelo. Tell us more about the tupelo tree and why you use this metaphor. Well, it's a metaphor, I think, that presented itself to me physically. During my first weeks of living here in Rhode Island, I I moved up from New York City, and I took an interest in the tidal marshes of Rhode Island, in part because I had been writing about sea level rise for quite some time. And I know that tidal marshes are one of the most endangered, most vulnerable ecosystems we have to climate change. And so I started visiting these marshes in Rhode Island to see if they were showing the early signs of sea level rise. And Of course they were. And the way that sea level rise, I think, is in some ways most immediately manifest for the everyday outdoor appreciator or environmental enthusiast is that if you go to tidal marshes around the country, you'll see often these ghostly silhouettes, these trees, these hardwood trees that have died because they're starting to suck up salt water through their root systems. And so here in Rhode Island, a tupelo is a common tree that you'll see along the coast in tidal marsh ecosystems. But in a place like Louisiana, you'll see cypress and live oak. And in all of these locations all around the country, hardwood trees that live in this particular ecology are struggling and perishing because of sea level rise. How did you feel when you started to encounter some of these these manifestations of sea level rise? It's something that people who live in a particular place for a very long time see over time. But this is an example of, of something that, that you know you, you come to a place and you come across and it, and it hits you right between the eyes of here is what is going on right now. Well, it's fascinating. I don't think I would have noticed these skeletal trees in our tidal marshes if someone who had been living in a tidal ecosystem hadn't pointed them out to me. So the first time I really became aware of them was down in coastal Louisiana. And I was out on the Isle de Jean Charles. This is an island that the population is largely made up of Biloxi, Chittimacha, and Choctaw Native Americans. And a local there, Chris Brunet, said to me, you know, I'm sitting here in my house and I can see the dead ghostly skeletons of 20 plus trees that used to be living, that used to be thriving during my lifetime. And I know that sea level rise is the reason for their untimely demise. So in many ways, I would have never even noticed these trees had someone whose life hadn't taken place in one place over time pointed them out to me. What was something that happened in your life, a single event that maybe woke you up to the reality of sea level rise? I know it's something that you ask people in the book. For me, it was really teaching at the College of Staten Island during Hurricane Sandy. Our campus remained closed for many weeks after the storm. And when we reopened again, quite a few of my students were missing. And that's when I realized that in this sly and difficult to locate way, sea level rise was already starting to dismantle, change, upend many of our coastal communities. But I felt like that story wasn't really being told in the news media. That's a place that you used to tell the story of of retreating from the sea, something that's a big part of the story. What did Staten Island do to cope with rising sea levels in that way? So what followed after Hurricane Sandy was really a surprise for me. 
many coastal communities in Staten Island have had long, persistent flooding problems, and they've always found themselves at the bottom of the municipal to-do list. And so as time went on, we got two, three, four months out of out from the storm itself, and they had yet to receive any real relief from the federal, state, or municipal level. And so coastal communities all across Staten Island, nine in total, started organizing themselves. They came together, started a grassroots buyout campaign, and they built consensus from the ground up and then went to the state's governor to ask that a hazard mitigation grant program buyout be used to help residents move away from risk. And and it was granted in three out of those nine communities. Your book also takes us up the coast just a little bit to Phippsburg, Maine. Tell us how that community is being impacted by sea level rise. So that chapter largely takes place in the Sprague River Marsh. I was a visiting scholar at Bates College for two years. And one of the reasons that I wanted to go to Bates was because they have a history of studying this very particular tidal marsh on the main coast. And they have half a century of data coming out of this marsh. It's a really exceptional ongoing research project. So that chapter largely focuses on this marsh, and I spend a lot of time out in the marsh with Bates geology professor Beverly Johnson and her students who are studying the rate at which the marsh itself, as it begins to rot, it's releasing methane and carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And they wanted to know how quickly, at what rate, was the marsh itself releasing these dangerous greenhouse gases. I'm wondering if writing about a big extinction event that this perhaps could be is is worrisome to you, makes you nervous about uh, how the world is changing. Well, something that I heard in writing Rising was through a conversation that I had and that my students had, again, at Bates College with a Penobscot historian and scholar, John Bear Mitchell, and I thought to myself, here's a man who's part of this native group of people and who probably has really interesting insights into how do you live through times of tremendous environmental change. Certainly the Penobscot, who were here for many thousands of years before colonists arrived, the coming of the colonists was, in effect, a massive transformation of the plants, the animals, the land where they had long made their lives. And I wanted to know, how did they deal with that? What John Bear Mitchell said really surprised me. He said, learn the names now so you can hold on to them in your collective memory, in your collective history, even if the objects or the animals or the plants no longer exist. And so I took that very seriously to heart as I was writing this book and and thought about how important it is for us to have language to describe the things that we might fundamentally lose in the coming centuries. I love that approach, though. You're a writer and you're preserving language. You're not approaching this as a scientist who goes and does core samples in the Arctic to chart how the climate is changing. You're actually uh, mining something a little bit different. I I feel like that's important. And I I haven't, Elizabeth, heard too many people who who are doing that type of, I don't know, linguistic archaeology. I I think it, it feels important somehow. I do as well. And I think it's in part 
you know, my work is fundamentally dependent upon those scientists really rising wouldn't exist without their work. And yet I know that for the everyday person, engaging with the language of those scientific reports can be daunting, overwhelming, arresting, and also essentially sort of create a threshold where folks don't necessarily engage with them because it's a little bit starts to sound like insider baseball. And so I wanted to really write a book that um, used language that was both given to me by folks living through these changes from their observations, um, using their eyes on the ground to describe what was happening, and that also then could use poetry and lyricism to speak to a broader audience all across the country. I think that some people, as you would say, look at the science behind climate change as a bit of inside baseball. I think that there's a certain number of people who view it as something that's just not happening and they want to deny the presence of the facts that you lay out. But I think that there's a third category that we might want to guard against, which is people who who feel so profoundly beaten down by a type of reality they see that Yes, we're slowly killing the planet, and it's all incredibly hopeless. I'm wondering if you have to fight back against that. It's just so hopeless. Why do you even bother? Well, I think it's interesting. I think a lot of our public discourse around climate change certainly tended towards the apocalyptic Mm -hmm. over the past decade or so. And I think that was done out of this real deep desire to get folks aware that it was happening and to care about it. And I think... As we can see over the past more recent time, two or three years, more newspapers, more radio stations are doing climate change coverage. And so I think that means that it's also time for us to think about new stories that we can tell about climate change, because certainly the apocalyptic ones lead to a sense of despondency and despair. I think Rising tries to do that in a really fundamental way by telling the stories of folks who are living through persistent flooding, higher tides, stronger storms, and asking what do they do when the ground beneath their feet starts to disappear? I found a lot of hope in the fact that they were individually, collectively figuring out how to move away from what made them vulnerable, how to move away from risk. And that gives me a lot of hope. I think that we absolutely can make some of the transformations that climate change demands. So you feel hopeful? I feel both hope and probably tremendous anxiety. I think that what concerns me the most is going back to that question of social and environmental justice. I think human beings can and will be able to make these changes. However, I also know that history tells me that the most vulnerable amongst us will feel the negative impacts the most profoundly, the earliest. And if we don't do something to start to think about funding more equitable disaster recovery and resilience, um, then I think we're all participating in that unjust and unwarranted assault on, on the vulnerable people and plants and animals that we live amongst. The book is called Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore, and the author is Elizabeth Rush, who lives in Rhode Island, where she teaches creative nonfiction at Brown University. Elizabeth, thank you so much. Thank you. 
You can find information about Elizabeth Rush's new book and some of her upcoming events around the region on nextnewengland.org. Throughout her book, Elizabeth discusses the difficult decision that communities face when sea levels begin to threaten. Do you rebuild or retreat? Rhode Island Public Radio's Avery Brookins explores how one summer community in Rhode Island is moving their cottages back from the rapidly rising seas. From the rocks at the ocean's edge on Roy Carpenter's beach, it's just a short walk up to the cottages. Landowner Robert Thorison heads toward the first two rows on the left. There's 21 houses total, um, 11 in this row and 10 in this row. The cottages in these rows are in a prime oceanfront location, but they won't be here for long. Within the next two years, they will be moved about a quarter mile inland because the ocean is creeping in closer and closer every year. Thorison, who is Roy Carpenter's great-grandson, remembers 25 years ago there was a lot more real estate between these cottages and the beach. You could probably park six cars end-to-end in front of this deck going back this way. Then there was a section of gravel parking lot that you could park two cars nose to nose. Now there's none of that. There's just a row of sand dunes, then the beach and the ocean. And Thorison isn't the only one who's noticed the change in this area. A study by the Rhode Island Coastal Resources Management Council found the water's edge had moved almost 300 feet inland between 1950 and 2014. And Thorison believes the future isn't going to look any better. I mean, eventually this place is going to be underwater. It's not if, it's when. When the wind picks up at Roy Carpenter's beach, it pushes waves against the quarter-mile stretch of sand. When Roy Carpenter owned this lot, it was a place where beachgoers paid to park their cars. Then in the 1930s, it evolved into a neighborhood where people built cottages to spend their summers. Today, the beach is home to more than 370 of them. Kevin McCluskey's father bought one back in 1959 when McCluskey was a kid. He remembers being a teenager and working on the beach as a Roy boy. Roy boys kept the beach in tip-top shape, cleaning bathrooms and picking up trash. But you weren't official until you were initiated by the others. And they'd make a mixture of trash. And at the end, they'd get the guy in the back and they'd pin him down and they'd throw all the stuff on him. And it was an honor. (laughs) (laughs) An honor that sounds a little dubious, but for McCluskey, being a Roy boy is his fondest memory of the beach. McCluskey has spent every summer here, and he's seen it change over time. In 2012, Hurricane Sandy damaged some cottages, and Robert Thorison and the Carpenter family decided it was time to take action. They moved two rows of cottages to the back of the beach, and Kevin McCluskey's was one of them. Now, instead of an ocean view, he looks out into cornfields, but he says that doesn't bother him. I'm looking at the same wind that was bouncing off the water, that was bouncing off the the corn or the hay. It's just as beautiful. But moving cottages further away from the ocean significantly reduces their resale value, and other cottage owners don't agree with the decision to retreat. They've accused Thorison of not trying hard enough to protect their investment. A suggested alternative was to build a seawall. But that can cause other problems. Seawalls can leave the beach more vulnerable because the sand doesn't have any room to move inland during storms and can get washed away. Thorison says his family's goal is to try to keep the land the way it's been for as long as they possibly can. I realize we won't make everyone happy, but everything we do, we do for what we think is the best for everyone. So it might not be good for row one, but we can't look at it like that. We have to look at it as what is good for hopefully everyone as a whole. At Roy Carpenter's beach, retreating is the plan for now. 
And although no one knows for sure what the future holds for the cottages, Kevin McCluskey isn't letting that change his summer plans. You know what you got, and you enjoy what you got for as long as you got it. Last year, Rhode Island Governor Gina Raimondo appointed the state's first-ever chief resiliency officer to develop a plan for the rising sea. The state is reacting to predictions that Rhode Island could see a foot of sea level rise in less than 20 years. If a 100-year storm hits under those conditions, that could leave more than 16,000 residential buildings vulnerable to damage. And most of the properties along the shoreline can't retreat, like the cottages at Roy Carpenter's Beach. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Avery Brookins in Providence. Coming up, the tribal dynamics of a biotech cluster. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. We'd like to end with a few stories of innovation and ingenuity. First, it's no secret that Greater Boston has become home to a biotech boom, but in addition to the economic growth it provides, it's also creating a new culture in the heart of the city. As part of WBUR's BioBoom series, Carrie Goldberg takes us on an insider's tour of who's who in the center of it all. It's lunchtime at Catalyst, an upscale restaurant in Kendall Square. A burger here runs you $16, and the cavernous space is packed. Every table is taken. Look around. What, what are we seeing? Well, we're seeing the convergence of tremendous intellect and a great deal of money. That's Jeff Krasner. He covered biotech for the Boston Globe and now has his own communications company. I ask him to break down the who's who of this biotech world. It can look intimidatingly esoteric to outsiders, and he's really good at classifying. The three tribes of Kendall Square are scientists, entrepreneurs, and the venture capitalists who fund them. And each of these are little subcultures unto themselves, and they all have their own dress codes, and they all have their own way of speaking, and you know they like to get together and start life science companies. Okay, so how can you tell who's who? Well, like at this table over here, we see an elderly gentleman with a white beard, and he's surrounded by one, two, three, like seven people who are all in their 20s or early 30s. He's probably a senior academic who has his own lab. And how would you be able to tell who's the venture capitalist? Venture capitalists usually wear fancy shoes and jackets, sometimes French cuffs, never a tie, just never a tie. If you see somebody wearing a tie, they're trying to get funding for their company. They're pitching. Of course, a person can belong to more than one tribe. I just find it astonishing that I can get up one day, talk to a graduate student about an idea, by lunchtime be having a conversation with a venture capitalist, and by the end of the day uh, being asked to come to a meeting because somebody wants to start a company around that idea. Richard Young is an MIT biology professor and a startup entrepreneur. Rubbing elbows with pharma CEOs, Nobel Prize winners. If this were old Boston, I'd say Young seems to have lofty Brahmin status. But what exactly is the social ladder here in this new Boston, and who's really at the top? Successful serial entrepreneurs are at the top of the list. 
That's Travis McReady. He leads the Massachusetts Life Sciences Center, an agency that invests hundreds of millions of dollars in biotech. The Pollyanna would say the only thing in that hierarchy that matters is great science. But that is totally and completely naive. We are humans, and we do what humans do. We discriminate. Meaning we make a judgment about who's most worthy of investment money. Your pedigree matters. Under whom did you study? Whose lab did you come out of? Mm -hmm. Did you graduate from MIT, Harvard? What was your PhD in? How many publications do you have to your name? The competition here is so intense and the energy so high that it can seem like a vortex sucking in biotech talent from all over the world. McCready says one third of the people who work in biotech here are immigrants. If you take a look at the greater Boston area 20 years ago and compare it to the demographics of today, my guess is that the international diversity of this city is due to this industry alone. I see plenty of that diversity at Lab Central, the biotech incubator in Kendall Square, where more than 50 startups get lab benches, freezer space, and camaraderie in their pressure cooker field. Laura Indolfi, the founder of a startup called Panther Therapeutics, says she's learning to cope with the ups and downs of science and business. You wake up in the morning and everything is going to be great and at lunchtime you are being the biggest failure of your life and then dinner it's okay maybe I'm doing okay tomorrow I'll worry about something else. It's like a roller coaster, a whirlpool, an avalanche. Those are terms I hear from people in Kendall Square. They make their work life sound like fun but often harrowing fun full of unrelenting effort. At least they're well paid. Average biotech salaries are well into six figures, and some CEOs take home millions. But money doesn't sound like their only motivation. Abby Selnicker is a general partner at the venture capital firm Third Rock. She's been in biotech for more than 30 years. What are we innovating for? We're innovating for patients. We're innovating to create therapeutic approaches that don't exist today and will change the lives of those patients. That is a big part of the conversation. Among Boston biotech leaders, you don't see the kind of conspicuous consumption and flagrant classism that Silicon Valley is known for, says Damien Garde, national biotech reporter for STAT. I'll often hear whispers, or I'll just hear in passing, the exorbitant displays of wealth that biotech people have, but it's something that they kind of keep under wraps. They're absolutely hanging out on their compounds on the Cape. They're just not tweeting about it. Big picture, Garde says, the biotech culture of Kendall Square has become mainstream. It's part of the fabric of Boston now. It isn't this grafted on thing. It is now multi-generationally a local industry, the same way medicine has been for a long time, the same way academia has been for a long time now to this. But the full impact of these new tribes may take a while to become clear. Travis McReady from the Life Sciences Center offers this provocative thought. The Massachusetts public school system is already considered the best in the country, but... Tens of thousands of type A brilliant scientists from all over the world send their kids to our schools. Uh, do you not think that there's going to be like a downstream effect? <laughs> oh yes, in demands for better education and other areas, the culture of the bio-boom will surely shape the broader culture here for many years to come. For the New England News Collaborative, 
I'm Carrie Goldberg. In New Hampshire's increasingly tight rental market, one area where there's new development is conversion of industrial buildings. It's a niche market, but one that's attracting multiple generations of residents. NHPR's Robert Garova looks at how millennials and retirees are finding common ground in the industrial spaces of New Hampshire's past. In a parking lot in Manchester, surrounded by a maze of early 20th century brick factory buildings just south of the ballpark, Mike Bernier tells me how he ended up here. So my dad says, tomorrow morning I want you to sit in a truck and I got a job for you. And I've been here ever since. <laughs> 1969. Since 1969. The buildings date from the early 1900s. Bernier's dad worked here, first making shoes for the McElwain Company. When Bernier got his first job here in 1969, it was manufacturing sunglasses with the Foster Grant Company. For almost half a century, he's clocked in at this place, now called the Sundial Center. These days, people don't just come here to work. They want to live here, too. Now Bernier works in maintenance, taking care of these old buildings. A couple floors up, he shows me a blown-up vintage black-and-white photo hanging on the wall. It's a picture of a factory employee party, complete with a band, dance floor, and hundreds of workers in their best attire. Back in the heydays, this was the cat's meow, this building. Everyone wanted to come work here because they took care of their employees. Look, they show you how they take care of the employees. They had parties. You had everything. It's clear Bernier's in love with the history of these old factory buildings, but that doesn't mean he's stuck in the past. So, I mean, as we walk through this place, you must have a lot of memories, you oh, know. Oh, well, we have tons and tons of memories. This building has changed a lot, and it's always been changed for the better. Part of that change happened in the last few years, when a good chunk of this complex was turned into multifamily housing. It's part of a trend across the state, as a generation of younger renters looking for housing are increasing demand. Jeffrey Frechette is 34, and as of just last year, he rents an apartment here with oversized factory windows. I did know that it was originally a factory building. It wasn't, I didn't know what they did. Um, I found out later that it was shoes. Frechette says it's that very history Bernier talks about that drew him here. I do love the idea of reusing factory buildings, mill buildings. I always pictured myself in one. People who study the housing market say this kind of reuse can meet a lot of needs in New Hampshire. I think converting mill buildings to housing is a spectacularly good idea. Peter Francis is a demographer who looks at housing trends. He says these conversions create new rental units for people like Frechette, usually close into urban centers where younger people like to be. But Francis sees at least one problem. It's not as affordable as it could be for younger people. Rents at the Sundial, they start at about $1,200 for a studio. Significant construction costs can drive up what developers charge, but there's strong demand for these spaces, too. Eric Tinberg has been converting New Hampshire's factory shells into housing and commercial property for decades now. His company is behind mill projects all over the Seacoast area, including Dover and Newmarket. One of his latest projects is here, at the site of the 19th century Frank Jones Brewyard in Portsmouth, where most recently, a company cranked out hot dogs. It had been empty for years, gravel floor, pigeons, bricks, graffiti, that was it. Chinberg says he hears the concerns about affordability. This new batch of housing will include lower-priced studios, which start out at around 1000 bucks a month. It used to be, you know, 10 years ago, we would do apartments that averaged eight to 900 square feet. 
Now our apartments are averaging 650 square feet. These smaller, cheaper, centrally located mill units that attract millennials draw in a very different age group, too. Barbara DiStefano is getting ready to retire and recently moved into a completed unit at the brew yard. I came on a couple of tours before it was ready, and I said, are you sure you got all the rats out and all the pigeon poop and everything else? <laughs> they did, and now DiStefano lives in one of the smaller units. She says her space makes sense for her for the same reasons it did for younger working professionals I talked with. It fits her budget, and it's walking distance to everything she needs. Just love it. You know, you meet all kinds of people. There are young people, definitely young people here, and there are old, older people that are retired or close to it. Experts agree that there just aren't enough empty mills or shoe factories in the state to meet all of New Hampshire's housing needs. New construction, they say, is necessary. In the meantime, Barbara DiStefano's building is fully occupied. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Robert Garova. A few years ago, it would have been hard to find a bottle of kombucha at your grocery store. The fermented drink is made from tea, sugar, bacteria, and yeast, and, well, it's an acquired taste. But these days, the tart, fizzy probiotic beverage is everywhere. As Rebecca Shear tells us, a pair of neighboring entrepreneurs in Vermont is now taking kombucha somewhere new, behind the bar. In 2009, Jeff Weber was brewing his organic Aqua Vitae kombucha out of his basement and selling it at farmers markets, co-ops, and other stores across Vermont. One day, who should knock on Weber's door but gun-toting agents from the State Department of Liquor Control and the Federal Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, or TTB. And they spent the next four or five hours with me digging through our process, taking samples, um, investigating the property, looking for distilling equipment and other things. So it was a very nerve-wracking uh, afternoon. The agents had been studying the burgeoning kombucha market, and in the eyes of the law, some brands of the fermented drink, including Jeff Weber's, had alcohol levels that legally were elevated. When you say elevated, what was it supposed to be and what were yours? A non-alcoholic product needs to be under 0.5%. That's 0.5% alcohol by volume, or ABV. And we saw things as high as 2.5%. That's more than some light beers. So Weber reached out to the Department of Food Science at Cornell. We started doing a lot of biological work, understanding how to manipulate, I guess you'd say, the, the fermentation to keep the alcohol down. Which is easier said than done. Kombucha is a complex fermentation. It's got two yeasts and it's got multiple strands of bacteria and all these other things that when you DNA test them have never been identified before. Weber started experimenting with ways to lower the alcohol level. Meanwhile, his growing company moved to an industrial park in Middlebury. It was there that they began using a machine developed for the wine industry, one that spins liquid and uses pressure to extract alcohol. So I realized early on that we were going to have a byproduct of alcohol. What I didn't realize was how much we were going to have. Containers full, it turns out. And Jeff Weber didn't want all this organic, 120-proof alcohol to go to waste. Luckily, he found the answer 300 yards away. Across the street in the industrial park was a business... Ooh, you should smell that. ...with tanks full of alcohol. That's our tequila. Yes, it is. Can you smell maple, though? Yeah, it's 80% agave and a 20% Vermont maple syrup. Lars Hubbard co-owns Appalachian Gap Distillery. The solar-powered spirits manufacturer prides itself on using interesting local ingredients, from slow-drip coffee to, yes, maple syrup. 
Now, the company can add Jeff Weber's Aqua Vitae Kombucha to that list. Jeff came over and we sat down and talked about the problem that they were having, and we decided to do a test batch and see how it worked out. That test batch turned into Aqua Vodka, a sweet, fruity, even slightly bitter organic spirit made from Aqua Vitae's leftover alcohol. They ship it over to us at about 60% alcohol, and we redistill it. And then we get about 40% of the total alcohol they send to us is good, clean ethanol. And so that's what becomes Aqua Vodka. And you had to sort of tinker with it before you found something you were truly happy with? I confess we're still tinkering with it. (laughs) A lot of what we do is just sort of learn by doing because no one's ever done this before. And as such, the feds didn't know what to do with it including how to designate what kind of liquor it was. Because we're making this from a spirit that is already infused with flavor, we can't actually call it a pure vodka because the way it's defined within the TTB, it's not vodka. And now on the label it says vodka with natural flavor. We have to put that with natural flavor part or we're breaking the law. But despite the bureaucratic hoops, Jeff Weber says aqua vodka has been received well by the public. You can buy bottles of it in five states, including Vermont and Massachusetts. And Levi's Stadium, home of the San Francisco 49ers, has featured a signature cocktail made with the spirit. So making vodka from kombucha has been mutually beneficial for these across-the-street neighbors. This is like a match made in heaven. (laughs) Seems to work. (laughs) I just wish there was a pipeline and we didn't actually have to drive it over here. That would help. (laughs) For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Rebecca Shear. Speaking of having a drink, join us for a live next event on Tuesday, June 19th. We'll be discussing how Springfield, Massachusetts will change with the opening of the casinos. It's a special NEPR news and brews event, Springfield's Big Gamble. Go to NEPR.net for more information. Cheers. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.